Hello, I'm David Levy, director of the Bolch Judicial Institute and a law professor at Duke Law School. I'm delighted to be hosting this episode of the Duke Law Podcast. Today, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Duke Law Professor Marin Levy, who I should say is no relation. She doesn't no even relation. spell You don't even spell your name correctly. <laughs> Professor Levy is a scholar of judicial administration, civil procedure, remedies, and federal courts. Her work has been published in top law journals, and she is also contributing visibly to current debates about court and law reform. Marin, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's all my pleasure. So today we're going to be talking about the world of Twitter. Marin, you've become a Twitter rock star with over 11,000 followers. That's a small city. I actually went on the web to see what kind of city would have about 11,000 people in it. Aspen, Colorado is one of them. You have more followers than live in Aspen, Colorado. I will take it. You cover legal history and a wide variety of other law topics. You combine interesting, sometimes obscure, sometimes inspirational stories and facts with historical photos, really amazing photos, and personal commentary in a way that has broad appeal. And you do it all with your characteristic charm and warmth. Are you surprised at what a big hit you are on Twitter? Oh my gosh, I'm shocked. Shocked. Never in a million years did I think this is something I would do, much less that anybody beyond, say, my parents would have any interest in it. So totally floored by the whole thing. When you meet people, do they sometimes say, oh, you're Marin Levy. (laughs) I follow you on Twitter. (laughs) Uh, That has happened a few times, including (laughs) students. And I get very self-conscious right away and then you know, switch the topic as quickly as I'm able. You know, let's just go back to the beginning. What was the beginning? How did you get into this? When when and why? We need an origin story, right? Like every good story begins at the beginning. So I actually joined Twitter back in January of 2017. So if we cast our minds back to that place, obviously we had a new administration and pretty quickly it was clear we were going to have different policies in place, a whole bunch of new judges getting appointed to the federal courts. And I just wanted to be in a space where I could see people reacting to all of these changes in real time. So I came onto Twitter very much. I think the technical term is I was a lurker. I mean, it was like, I joined the party to be a wallflower. I did not join it to be out there in front. I just wanted to follow a bunch of people and really to see what their commentary was on the kind of big issues of the day. So I think in my first year, I tweeted like, I don't know, five or six very inconsequential things, but was really there to listen. I didn't realize that it started with, you might call it political inspiration, because there was a new administration. I wouldn't say that that is the defining characteristic of your Twitter account. You do cover politics from time to time. But when did it start to shift? So, and I would say, I mean, again, right, when I first joined I just wanted in real time to know what people thought of things. So it wasn't, I should say, it wasn't really even a political motivation so much as it just thought the world was changing very quickly. You know, I'm an institutionalist, I believe in experts, and I really just wanted to know what, what expert people thought of you know, the topic of the day. So that really was the motivation. And I felt myself pretty apprehensive about weighing in on any given topic. So I really was there again, just to be in the background and to listen. 
And then I think things started to change a couple of years ago. So of course, as you know very well, about a year and a half ago, court reform became a topic of conversation. Obviously, there was a, a big splash about court packing, court expansion. And Tom Ginsburg, a lovely professor at the University of Chicago, actually then tweeted out something I had written. So just serendipitously, I had written not too long before that, a piece about court packing that was happening at the state level. So I myself didn't put that out there. He very generously did, and it got picked up and a lot of people started responding to it. And that was a kind of turning point for me. And I thought, oh, I guess maybe I know a little something about a little something. And maybe there's a, a part of this conversation that I can plug into. So that ended up being a lot of fun. And it got me to think about writing an op-ed, which I then did for the Washington Post. And it, it really just changed my viewpoint. I started doing some more public-facing events. One thing, of course, that was very exciting, as you know, is I was able to testify before the Biden Commission then this summer. So it really, it just felt like all of a sudden I was pulling up a chair to a, you know, to a table where a lot of people were seating, seated having a conversation, and I just joined in the conversation. Since I was on this commission, I know a lot of people testified before the commission and a lot of people have written op-eds, but not a lot of people have 11,000 followers and not a lot of people have this distinctive, I would call it a brand or a tone or a kind of a, you know, style. So let's accept that you became more of a public figure with this uh, work you did on uh, state courts. All of a sudden, Marin K. Levy came out and it was kind of like Colbert or something. It's, oh, it's, it's, so I'm going to ask you, do you think of yourself as having a Twitter brand? You know, there is this style. So the word brand makes me very nervous, right? I think, you know, gosh, that's like for the people across the street at the business school, you know, they're experts on that. I don't really know anything about branding as such. I will say if we, if we can get personal for a minute, can we get, can we get personal? Can we do that? Yeah, well, we always get personal. We always get personal. Who are we kidding? Yeah. I would say there are a few things that were happening at the time. So one, of course, is, again, as we said, it just so happened that the things that I really am passionate about work-wise became a little bit more relevant to the larger kind of national discourse, and I felt like I could join in. But it's also the case, as you know, over the past year, I've been going through a divorce and an amicable one. But what that means is that there are evenings when you are home alone and you basically have a choice in those moments, right? You can grab the ice cream and go watch some Netflix, which I've done on many occasions, or you can think about the things that you really enjoy and are passionate about and go down those rabbit holes and then share them in a kind of, how do I put this? It's sort of like returning to that place of unbridled joy, right? Where you're like, I'm not going to be self-conscious about this. I'm not going to worry about posturing. This is not a faculty workshop. I'm just going to go for it and explore this and then share this with the world and then see if there are any people who also found this story to be inspiring or, or interesting. And I think if you can get to that place and kind of because of the conditions that I've just described, it actually can bring out a sort of truer version of who you are in a way. And I think that that's really, in fact, what happened here. So I would say, you know, your brand is you. And, <laughs> and I think you've actually answered the question that, that it is your authentic voice. You know, it's not a, you know, if you were writing a, a work of fiction, for example, and you decided to put it in the first person, that might be a created person. It would be. 
it might have aspects of your own personality and your own voice, but you would very self-consciously kind of create a, a different character, I think. You probably have more, you, you have, you've put more uh, uh, sort of unconscious thought into the character you're creating, maybe, than you give yourself credit for, I wonder. Do you agree with that? I agree with all of that. I think, you know, so stepping back, I think it's helpful to, and of course, you know this very, very well, but then perhaps for the folks like who are listening, like my mother, um, you know, it's helpful to remember that being a law professor is very performative, right? There's a lot about our job where we are kind of putting on a persona. I think in the classroom over time, I have come to feel like I'm just myself. I think the students know that. Um, I began to realize it wasn't going to work if I came into class as Professor Levy in some uh, more serious way. But certainly when you're in a faculty workshop, when you're asking questions, you know, we are very serious. Uh, we're talking about what does the literature say and that sort of thing. And in comparison to all that, I actually think being on Twitter is very freeing, right? Because you can use emojis and it's okay. You know, you can include some little video clip and it's okay. And I, I should say, it wasn't actually obvious to me at the beginning that that was true. So when I first joined, as I said, I was very self-conscious about what I posted and wanted to make sure I was sounding like a serious law professor. And there are a few people who really changed my view of that. Uh, Leah Littman at Michigan was one of those key people. So Leah is a brilliant constitutional law scholar, scholar of Fed courts. And I was just blown away with the ease in which she would toggle back and forth between tweeting something about some serious Supreme Court decision with insightful commentary, and then quoting a Taylor Swift lyric, right? Like when that first happened, it actually felt kind of shocking to me. I was like, we're allowed to do that? You know, like they won't take away our serious law professor badge if we do that. And I watched her do it to great effect. Uh, and other friends too, a lot of my male friends do that. Josh Chaffetz, one of my closest friends is at Georgetown. And again, he can make the most brilliant comments about something that's happening in Congress and then give you a picture of his dog, Stubbs, who we love. And that really was eye-opening to me because I, I feel like, again, in the academy, you don't always have that sort of freedom. Or the concern is that if you do too much of that, you will not be taken so seriously. And so the, the idea that there was this window, this space where you could do this online and it could work was very appealing to me. So yeah, I guess stepping back, I definitely subscribe to that great Walt Whitman line that we all contain multitudes, right? At any given moment, you might be some different facet of yourself. But I actually think in a funny way on Twitter, I'm, I'm much more my authentic self, whatever that means. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I, I think the combination of professional and personal is um, it's a mark of a certain kind of, it's your mark, but it's not unique to you, I think is what you're saying. And it's interesting. It's and it may be located in your demographic to some extent, or because I think when you say you've been told, you know, you shouldn't do that, that's maybe the way older people are. Well, in your case, you sometimes mix personal observation. I don't remember anything about Taylor Swift, but I, I do recall <laughs> that your your two sons appear from time to time if they, they have do. a birthday or that. Okay, so do they get a do they get to say no? I don't want to be on your Twitter feed. How does that work? That's a great question, right? Do we have consent of Ben and Sam? So I, I should confess, I'm kind of figuring this out as I go. When this began, I had very few people who were following me, so it didn't really feel like it made that much of a difference. And I've 
tried to think more about this as time has gone on. So they know that I post about them and I think they get a kick out of it. In fact, uh, one of my sons recently was like, did anybody like it? And I was like, okay, no, no, we don't. We're taking that off the table real quick. So I think they think it's kind of amusing for now. And at a certain point, I'll probably rethink whether this is a good idea. And Joseph, you know, their dad, he knows everything that I do. And we, we talk about it and kind of sign off on it together. I will say, so I do put them on there very deliberately. I think for a couple of reasons. One is, and I think we'll be talking about this later, kind of goes to one of the things I'm hoping to do, which is, you know, we can go on to these social media spaces and get very depressed very quickly, right? I mean, part of that's because, let's say, the news of the day, part of that's just the kind of discourse that we so often see. And I think it's not for nothing that people will sometimes put out on Twitter, like, I'm having a bad day. Can someone give me some pictures of their dogs or cats or just something joyful and sweet and from that perspective, I like to be able to post these little kids because I think it's something to break up the feed that we otherwise see. But the other part of it that's very important, I think, is reminding people that you know you can be a law professor and be a devoted parent, right? That again, going back to the rules of academia, at least, I remember being a little self-conscious about that in the beginning. You know, could I could I share that I have kids? Would that make me seem less serious? And that sort of thing. So part of what I'm also trying to do there very self-consciously is to normalize that a little bit more for folks. I think there's something important about that probably for, oh, uh, I'll call you a younger, for younger women who, you know, who yeah, are, young, we don't have to say younger, let's young. say young. Let's flatter me a little bit here. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, because there's, you know, we're still, I, I think we're still in the not maybe in the middle, but we're still in a period of change. And women traditionally and even now sort of do more, I think the studies show. And you're you're showing that, well, you're managing. You know, you've you've got a lot going on in, in life. It's not just one thing. Is that's probably an important message to to put out there. It is. You know, I mean there are these studies, of course, things like once upon a time did women feel comfortable putting photos of their children on their desk, you know, in their office space, right? That it yeah. might be in some ways easier for men to do that than for women and just being concerned about how they would be perceived and all of that. So again, keeping that in the back of my mind, I feel like Ben and Sam in their own way are, are helping out the feminist cause there you unwittingly. I mean, I'm biased, but they're cute. Yeah, until they're teenagers, and then they'll have their own Twitter feeds, and they'll be oh, like, God. you know, yeah. Well, whatever the next thing will be, right? That's the crazy thing. You know, Twitter will be yeah. maybe so outdated by then. Who knows? Who knows what who it'll knows? be? Very likely. So who would you say uh, your tweets are for? You know, what is your, do you have a vision of who your your audience is? And do you actually know who your audience is? I mean, do, do you have like statistics that say like, oh, it's it's this group or that group? Do you, what do you know? So I don't, I'm, I'm not that scientific about it. I get the sense that a lot of people are lawyers um, or, you know, academics, particularly within law. So I think that that's a, a pretty sizable group. And you can pick up on this too, because of things like hashtags. So there's a very strong contingent that follows the law Twitter or appellate Twitter kind of hashtags that go through. So I think I, think I have a few of those folks in, in the boat. I think students, so students at Duke, but also, you know, law students at other universities who think maybe they'll learn something for their final exams uh, based off of this. 
you know, and then I think there are just, just people out there who like to know more about the courts or some kind of little angle on history. I think there's some people who particularly like the stories about women, let's say. So, you know, when they see those, they get more engaged. The truth is that I actually try very hard not to think about any one particular person or even group of people when I come up with a tweet. One, because I think it makes me much more self-conscious, right? It's, it's actually easier to do this when you aren't envisioning an audience. But then two, I don't want to get to a place where I'm, I'm trying to get people to like something, right? It's really like, I want to find something that I think is really interesting, hopefully inspiring and share that, but not really with an intention much beyond that. I would, I would find that hard to resist. You tweet about something, let's just say particularly uh, something that you didn't think actually would be all that interesting to people. And then all of a sudden, whoa, it, it's on fire for some reason and people really are engaged by it. And I would think, oh, gee, I would, uh, I would feel pressure to try to you know, repeat that. It's like hitting a home run or something. I want to hit another home run. So that has actually happened and it's happened more recently. So, I mean, at this moment, I have more than twice the number of followers I did you know, at the beginning of the fall semester. And the more people follow you, the more people are apt to like what you're doing and uh, retweet it. And then it, it grows from there. And it's, it can be delightful, right? You put something out into the universe and the next thing you know, a few hundred people have enjoyed it. And, and that can be a kind of high on its own. But I, I think I've tried at least to be very wary of that, right? Like you don't, you don't want to chase the likes. That will not lead to a good place. One, because then I think you're not really coming up necessarily with quality content, right? You're just, you're like, oh, can I think of something that will, you know, that people might get a kick out of for a minute. Um, but that's not, that's not really what I'm trying to do, I think, in a larger sense. Then, right, the, the last thing I think this, that I want this to feel like it's like I'm getting graded, right? Where you're like, oh, no, people didn't like that or people like the other thing more. And then it's not fun. Right. Then it's just like another aspect of your job where you feel like you're performing and you're being evaluated. And part of what I really wanted this to be was a space away from all of that. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. I, I, I try not to think about it. Um, I try not to think about the people who follow me. I think that even makes me more self-conscious. You know, when you, <laughs> you realize you're like, you're, these are people who are familiar to you and you think, oh, my gosh, you know, so-and-so is, is reading what I'm writing. Um, but I try as much as possible to put that out of my mind when I'm coming up with a little story. It seems like that's a good attitude. I, I wonder, I, I mean, could a Twitter account with a significant personality, which I think your account has, which is why it is so delightful, could it have a life cycle, you know, much like a, like a really great television show? It starts and then, you know, after a few years, people say, well, I've sort of experienced that. I'm ready for a new show. Uh, maybe you're on the upswing now and then they'll get to a point where you they'll get tired to, of me. Yeah, I'll be yesterday's tired. news. <laughs> <laughs> sort of. And would you be upset about that or would it that be? That's OK. We don't really know the answer to that, because even though Twitter has been around for some time, it's not like the way we use it now has been used for so many years. So, I mean, some accounts, I think, have have dropped in popularity, but it, I don't think we have enough time to really know how these things will work. My guess is more it's just going to be a new platform that people are excited about and Twitter will become less salient. I mean, the people who seem to do well on Twitter, if we follow things like how many people like what you do or how many followers do you have, are able to adapt a little bit, right? Like they, they can stay on current events, but maybe they, they change up their content. 
And that's certainly been true with, with what I've done. So it, when I first began down this road, I started with these little judicial fun facts. So it'd be like, here's just a random little fact about the judiciary, right? And that was fun, but I started to feel constrained by that. I was like, well, there's a little more to the story. I want to add a little more, right? And so then it became maybe two tweets in a row. And that was fun and people seemed to enjoy that. And so then that's really in the last year where I've started doing longer threads, last, last year and a half, something like that. So yeah, so I've tried to adapt a little bit what I do and we'll see how long people are interested in it. Yeah, it seems to be changing, you know, all the time in a good way. So you have the fun facts, which you mentioned. Um, <laughs> yes. You have, uh, you highlight sort of historical stories, often about women and others who've kind of overcome uh, discrimination or have dealt with it in some way. You've done some things on places, courthouses and yeah. courthouse libraries. Talk about the content, if you would. Yeah, I'm going to risk being very sentimental and sort of saccharine here. So I hope you'll push back on me a little bit and make sure I don't go like fully over the edge. I think about things like for those of us who went to law school, like why did we go to law school? Right? What was that about? Now, of course, some people will say, well, I didn't like the sight of blood, so I wasn't going to go to medical school. So this is what I did. I think for a lot of us, there was something really inspiring about the idea that we were going to be studying these great cases. And in fact, the great judges and justices, you know, who gave them to us. What I'm saying, I recognize is maybe a little bit of an outdated mode. And I don't mean to suggest we shouldn't be critical of any of these figures. But I would say I was very inspired by these people. Like These were my heroes growing up. I was totally dazzled by the Ruth Bader Ginsburgs of the world and, and the learned hands, right? I mean, these are the people who I just found fascinating. And one of the things I loved about clerking was getting to be around some of these figures, like the great John O. Newman, right? Pierre Laval, just fabulous people who are out there making decisions. And so I think it comes from that place of love and reverence and wanting to explore who these people were or are and remind us kind of why we got into this business in the first place. And I feel that with buildings too, that same sort of, you know, I mean, I think that's one of the things I love about so many of our courthouses, that they truly are solemn spaces that make us reflect in a different way. Um, I mean, that's of course what they were intended to do. And I think they are often successful at that. So part of it's just kind of celebrating all of that. And then, you know, can we learn a little bit more about these people? Can we peek behind the curtain a little bit? You mentioned that you clerked and you, you clerked for the great Jose Cabranes. Oh, uh, yes. So is that... I'm sure he's up there on your list of um, your your pantheon of of heroes oh, and he's interesting my hero. people. Oh yeah, yes, he's certainly a, a wonderful mm. person. So, how do you find these great photographs? Uh, whether it's of you know Felix Frankfurter and his spouse or Wasn't the Iowa, fun? yeah. How do you how do you do this? It's kind of great that the tools that we normally use as academics can be deployed in this other direction, right? So, I look everywhere. I'm looking in old law review articles, old newspapers. Newspapers are great for this sort of thing. I mean, you know, and this is one of the advantages of having so much that's digitized today. I look at old sources from historical societies. So I did a few threads recently on the first female jurors in the country. And that, of course, took place in the territory of Wyoming. So I was on the Wyoming's historical society site and digging through records there. I look in all kinds of sources to find these sorts of things. 
do people send you suggestions like, gee, Marin, you might be interested in this? I get this, in fact, all the time. And people will say, actually, you know, something will come up and somebody will say, you know, Marin K. Levy, can you do a thread on that? I'm like, oh my God, it's like they put up the bat signal and I'm, I need to go out and go learn something. I mean, these things can take time too, right? It's like, oh gosh, so I actually, it's not unlike with law review articles, right? You get to a place when you're a law professor, you have so many things you want to write about. And so you keep a list, you know, here are the next five or six projects I want to take on. I'm like this now with threads. I actually have a, a Word doc where I just keep track of the various things I want to take on at some point, either because I've, you know, myself have thought, oh, this could be fun. Or more likely somebody has said, can you do something on this? Um, and I've said, of course. Do, do you tend to do this on the weekends? Or I think you said, Maybe it's in the evenings when you have some time. <laughs> yeah, so it's funny. In the very beginning, it wasn't that time intensive because I was really putting out just you know a thought here or there, and it was really based on research I was doing at the time. So I'd uncover, you know, I'd be looking at something about, say, visiting judges, right? Like I wrote a, a law review article on the practice of sitting by designation and went through the history of that. And there's so many interesting things that come out of that. So you know, I would just pull something and put it out there on Twitter. That's very easy to do. Then over time, what I was tweeting about started shifting. You know, there's still some of that, but more of it now is actually uncovering or, or trying to find out about, you know, all sorts of questions. You know, like who was the first woman to clerk on the Supreme Court? You know, that's not something I would have researched independently, but then you have to go out and do it to answer that question. Um, it actually takes quite a bit of time. Uh, there are certain nights when I do it because those are the nights when I don't have the boys. Uh, and it, so I'm very happy to be throwing myself into a world of these different characters, but yeah, it takes a lot of time. And I would say there are a lot of steps to it. Right? So you, I wouldn't have known any of this going into it, but that what I've kind of decided that like, and you have to do the research first of all. So then once you feel like you get a real handle on it, then you have to figure out how you actually turn that into a threat. And that is very challenging. There's sort of an, an upper bound here. I don't like to do threads that have more than, say, 12 or 13 tweets. I think people lose attention. And it's just, it's sort of too much, right? We want something that's a little bit more bite-sized than that. So you, you think about what your space constraints are. And then you have to think about what your space constraints are with respect to each tweet. You only get a certain number of characters. You know, sometimes people will do threads where they have carryover from one tweet to the next. I actually find those harder to follow. So the challenge really is like making distinct points all along the way. And so that takes some time, right? Like I've become more accustomed to it, but you have to think, okay, what is the point of this particular one? What's the point now of the second one? What's the point of the third one? Hopefully keeping people engaged along the way, including pictures, maybe emojis, those sorts of things. But then like, what's the arc of the story? So that it just uses a different part of my brain than I've used before, but it's, you know, it does have some connections to teaching, right? Like what will be covered in this lecture? What's the beginning? What's the middle? What's the end? It's something like that, but in a different medium. And then you, you have these layout considerations too, because you have these great photos and you have to decide, I guess, when you're going to reveal them. Yes. I mean, and that can be a lot of fun, actually. I mean, one of my favorite threads, which we might talk about in a little bit, involved the judge who swore in Lyndon B. Johnson, you know, on, on Air Force One, Obviously, that was a very big moment in the country. So I began very deliberately with a picture I think a lot of us had seen before of the moment where about to be President Johnson, you know, was sworn in. And then at the end of the thread, I had a photo of that moment from a slightly different vantage point. So you actually see the judge more in the picture. So it was, an, it was a nice way to kind of bookend that story. 
you do have, I would say, a theme running through them, which is about women. And I, I think you're purpose there is to celebrate women who've done great things. Some of them have not been remembered and you honor them now. Am I right about that? Yeah, I think that's right. It's a couple kind of ideas behind it. So one absolutely is to celebrate people who I feel like maybe we don't celebrate sufficiently, you know, to to get names out there who we might have forgotten. So that's part of it, right? To make sure that people really are in our collective memory. But the second part is I think in so many of these stories, particularly when you're talking about people who are breaking barriers, there's just something really inspiring about who these people were and the kinds of comments that they were making at the time and what they were trying to do and the people who helped them along the way. I think it's just good for us to be reminded today, not just about a positive story, but also there are people out there who were doing the right thing, right? People who were trying to help somebody get to some other place in life who weren't doing it for their own personal gain, but just because they thought it was the right thing to do. And I, I think we don't see enough of those stories today. Maybe we, we aren't acting enough in that way today. Um, and so I think that there's something really meaningful about that as well. Do you get a response to those um, kinds of stories? Do people tell you, oh, gee, this, is, this was really inspirational to me? Do you hear that? I do. I do. I hear people who say, gosh, you know, I never knew that. I never heard that person's story before. I never heard of her or him. You know, I, I find that that just wonderful. And also, you know, some of the time I'm tweeting about people who are very much still with us and I will hear back from them or from say their clerks, like judge so-and-so really appreciated the mention, you know, of her story today. And that is, I mean, that's lovely, but also kind of wild, right? You kind of forget that you can actually interact with some of these people. So that's, that's just delightful. Might you see yourself as as participating in, you know, what we're calling now civic education, which many of us think is, you know, woefully lacking in this country? Do you see yourself making a contribution in that way? I hope so. Um, I mean, that's probably a loftier goal than I can claim to have. But one of the things that I was really touched by was somebody who follows me as a, a high school teacher. And at various times, he will say to his students, you know, oh, note this. And I, I love that. I wasn't expecting that, certainly. And, and that, I think, is great. You know, I mean, as you know, we can we think about a number of people in the judiciary who we admire and their commitment to civic education. And you know, I find that inspiring. I think about, of course, the great Bob Katzman. I think about Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, folks like that who really just felt like there's a lot that we aren't we are not retaining, you know, that we really could be emphasizing in, in our education of young people today. I fully subscribe to that view. And so I think if we can remind people of things along the way, that's all to the good. I will also say, I think some of these points end up being important for current discourse. For example, you know, recently there was some controversy over President Biden's decision to say when he was considering who he would put the Supreme Court next, he was going to pick a black woman. Um, and, and some of the pushback there was, you know, this is unprecedented. We, we've never seen anything like this. And I think people can have views over that decision. You know, people, of course, are entitled to their own views. But helpful to remember that, of course, President Reagan had made not the same exact commitment, but a similar type of commitment uh, when he was campaigning, that he was going to try to appoint among one of his first nominees, a woman to the Supreme Court. And then, of course, we got Justice O'Connor out of that. And so sometimes I think history can be relevant there. Again, not to push people in one direction or another, but to make sure that when they're making their own 
choices about how they're going to view you know, something currently going on, that they're informed, that they have the, the history kind of at their fingertips. Some of the stories you tell are, they're historical, they're quite intricate, and they don't quite fit the mold of what we just discussed. They're super interesting. That maybe they're not so much in the Horatio Alger tradition, or if somebody, you know, kind of overcoming obstacles, women, minorities, and others. How do you pick those stories, and what are you hoping to accomplish there? This is a great question. I think a few different things. So some of those stories, honestly, if I can admit this, are just because I'm fascinated by the person and their life. But I, I guess I would say, on top of that, that there can be a value in humanizing certain great figures in law. So I could think anybody who, who reads any of my tweets knows I have a special place in my heart for learned hand. Um, I just, of course, jurist of his time. And I mean, one of the world's magic people, right? That's how I think about it. So, you know, you, there are lots of things that we can learn about learned hand, of course, he's basically a genius. And we can talk about his days at Harvard and the key moves that he made and how he affected the country's jurisprudence. But I also think that there's something to know about him personally. I mean, so some things are just fun. Like, isn't it sort of amazing to think that he was such close friends with J.D. Salinger of all people, right? I mean, that's just a kind of, you know, oh gosh, these two figures in the same place at the same time who enjoyed each other. But more than that, you know, I mean, he's somebody, of course, who went through great heartbreak in his marriage. And I think it's useful to know that these great figures were also people too, right? That they contain multitudes. And it can be interesting to know that, but then also I think it just reminds us they may be lofty, but they are also just like us and with the thought that maybe we could be a little more like them. What would you say you've learned from this experience that you've had on Twitter of being a, what I call it, a Twitter rock star? But, <laughs> oh, no, uh, no, no, no. But, but obviously an extremely thoughtful one. What have I learned? Oh, goodness. So one thing I would say is, I mean, again, you know, I went into this really just to absorb what other people were thinking and talking about. What I did not expect to find and what has been absolutely delightful, particularly during the pandemic, has been the community. Once you get into certain conversations and following certain people, when you go onto Twitter, it's a little bit like going into a faculty lounge, or even if we, we push it a little bit, it's like, walking into the bar in cheers, you know, like where everybody knows your name and you know their name. And it's, it's like, all right, boys, all right, ladies, like, what are we talking about tonight? And it is so much fun. I really could not have guessed that in a million years. Like you just start to join in these conversations and then all of a sudden you have great jokes and you pick up threads and you're pushing each other on your, you know, your views on something. But it's in this, it's just in this delightful space. And I think, again, as I you know, mentioned a moment ago, Having that in the pandemic has been a lifesaver. I mean, it really has been. Like, you can just go online at night, and then all of a sudden, you've got 10 great friends, and you're in the middle of this fascinating conversation. Also, there are a few people who really have just like lit up my world in that respect. Um, and we've only become friends like a year ago, but it's through Twitter. So, Julian Mortensen at Michigan, who's just a brilliant con law scholar, and Alexi Lahav, you know, great and fabulous civil proceduralist about to be at Cornell, and then Dave Hoffman, who's a scholar of so many things at Penn. We just bumped into each other basically on Twitter. I mean, that's how I think of it. It's like we stumbled into the same bar, essentially. And we are now 
just famous friends. Like we will, we talk all the time, all the time. And it really just grew out of like being interested in the same sorts of things. I could never have imagined that. And I think, again, in the midst of the pandemic, that's so helpful, but also part of it's at the stage in life, right? Like when you're younger, you always have a cohort. You know, you're in grade school, you're in high school, college, law school, you have a group of built-in friends and you, you all bond. And then, you know, those are your lifelong friends. The idea that you could have an opportunity later in life to have a great collection of friends, like not because your kids go to the same school and you bond, that's wonderful too. But like, because you share these intellectual interests and you have similar senses of humor, like where else would you get to do that and be friends with people all over the country? It's that has been such a gift. And uh, as I said, I could never have imagined that when I first joined. That's really amazing. For those of us who are not so involved in Twitter, when we hear about Twitter, it's usually because somebody has tweeted or more to the point, retweeted something. And now they're ashamed of it. Uh, they're the apologizing care. for it. You know, they're in hot water for it. Oh, dear, uh, yes. Okay. Do you ever worry about that? Yes, I do. You know, I think, and particularly with the current climate and the culture we live in, we don't have to talk about cancel culture per se, but I think there is this fear that you can make a misstep even in, in good faith. And it could be very, very problematic from there on out. I'm helped out a little bit by the fact that I don't, you know, there are things I comment on that are, you know, current events. I'm very interested in the judiciary, of course, like what the nominations are looking like, you know, and these are things and I'll comment to the press about this. So it's not to say that I don't have any, I'm not trying to have a voice in current debates or conversations, but so much of what I'm doing is looking at events of the past. And, you know, and then again, they're meant to be a little bit more on the positive side. So I think because of the things I typically stick to, I I've been very fortunate, at least, not to have landed in hot water, but that's not to say that my time won't come. Just before we leave the, the topic of missteps, which I think is, uh, we've had tweeting judges and they've tended, <sighs> to re- they've tended to regret it. And I think it's not, a, it's not a thing any longer, pretty much. I'm just wondering, do, do you ever run your proposed tweet by anybody else and say, gee, do you think this is like over the top or is this okay? Or is this all pretty much all you unvarnished and uncensored? Yeah, yes. Great. I, I mean, I would say it's, it's me uncensored though. I censor myself. <laughs> that is, I mean, part of it's, I'm not somebody who's going to try to burn a lot of things down. I mean, as we said, you know, I'm an institutionalist and even though I have politics on the left, I'm also a little bit of a Berkeyan at heart. Right. So I, I don't worry that I'm really going to push the envelope all that often, but it is something to think about. I mean, you know, certainly there are people who have wanted to go on the bench, right? Who have regretted creating a bit of a Twitter record. That that's not, I think, in my future. But just thinking about future jobs, or you know, or even just that your students see this, I think that in of itself provides a little bit of a, a kind of editing function in your mind, right? There's certain lines you don't want to cross. But yeah, I mean, I do think we're kind of in a weird time. We haven't really had something quite like this before, where people are putting so much of themselves out there. And and then the question is, how does this affect things down the road for them? So uh, you've done so many really great threads. Are there one or two that stand out for you that are particularly resonant with you or whatever reason or just, you know, these are your favorite threads? Yes, I have a couple if that's okay. Um, Of course. 
one of the first threads I ever did, and this is before I, I knew enough to put in pictures and emojis and things, but just kind of throwing it out there to the universe was one about Justice Scalia. So it's, there's no educational piece of this. There's nothing even inspiring. It's just a story. And actually, I, I have to laugh. I was talking to a friend recently and I said, oh my gosh, I think something I put out there was kind of ridiculous. And he said, right, ridiculous, but edifying, which I decided was then that was going to be my tagline for the rest of the year. But this isn't even that, like there's nothing edifying about it. So it's just a story and it's one of my favorites. So the summer, <laughs> the summer before my 3L year, this was when back in the good old days, people would apply for clerkships. So I spent so much of the summer really like working on my writing sample and being in touch with my recommenders and you know getting my list just right of all the judges I was going to apply to. Really stressful process. So the the waning days of summer, I go out to Wyoming with my family. You know, very special place. And I'm I have a suitcase full of hard copy applications. Right, like I'm I'm literally like I am in the FedEx. I am mailing these out all across the country, and I'm miserable. So when that is finally done, I was like, okay, I have a few days left of this family vacation and I don't want to think of Article 3 like for the next couple of days because I knew it was around the corner, right? The hope is you then get calls and you go through the interview process. That was a couple of weeks away. I was like, this is my one moment of quiet, right? Just to relax. The next day, I go with my brother and some friends to Signal Mountain Lodge. Beautiful lodge right at the base you know, of, of Mount Marin and the Tetons. And we're, we're hanging around getting nachos, having a great time. And in walks this man. And I look over and I'm like, I swear to God, I'm losing my mind. I think that is Justice Scalia. Like I, I'm clearly hallucinating at this moment, right? Like law school has gotten to me so much that I am seeing him even in a bar in Wyoming. And so I really, I like shake my head. I'm like, you know, get it, get a grip, Merton. But I look back and I'm like, I swear to God, that is Nino Scalia. And he's looking around the room. Nobody notices him. Like nobody even bats an eye, right? But then he looks at me and I'm all wide-eyed and like mouth the gate. And he's like, oh, you know, and I'm like, oh. And then he goes to sit. I am not a particularly brave person. Something possessed me in the next few minutes. I do not know what. But the waiter came over and I was like, is that? Like, is that actually Justice Scalia? And he said, yeah, actually, it's been like a total nightmare because we've got Secret Service up in the kitchen and it's just driving everyone crazy. And I was like, okay, I would like to buy that man a drink. Why I said this, I have no idea. I have never tried to buy anyone a drink like that before, but it was like, it just possessed me. And he was kind of nonplussed. He's like, all right, whatever, lady. He's like, what, what drink? And I was like, what's the drink of the house? And they said, it's a blackberry margarita. And I was like, I would like to send him the drink of the house, like the blackberry margarita. Anyway, the story ends in slightly anticlimactic fashion because the waiter goes over and I'm like, you know, totally glued to the whole scene. Comes back only to report that just moments before the justice had himself ordered a blackberry margarita. So he was not in need of mine, but he thanked me very much. But the thing I really get a kick out of is that it was not too long after I applied to clerk on the Supreme Court and I couldn't help myself. So when I sent in my application to Justice Scalia, I had a postscript in which I put, I'm that lady who tried to buy you a drink in Jackson Hole, you know, the night of whatever it was. And I left it at that. I figured hopefully some law clerks would get a kick out of that somewhere. That is, that's a hilarious story. I, the only part I find confusing, since I knew him rather well, is why he didn't think that he could have a second blackberry margarita. He was certainly capable of it. 
<laughs> yes, I right. It may well be. I mean, he thought, let's you know, let's not encourage this crazy lady <laughs> off in the corner. I wouldn't blame Indeed. him for that. Maybe. But, but I love well, that. that, and I told that story, and I, I tell you, one of the best things that came of it was a member of Justice Scalia's family reached out, and we had a lovely exchange after that, and it was just, you know, just crazy. That's really a special story, and I, you tell it so well. What's oh, your you. what, What's your other favorite thread? I'll just quickly. There are two that I that are just have a special place in my heart. So I mentioned earlier, I really love the story of Judge Hughes. This is Judge Sarah Hughes. She was the person, of course, who swore in uh, President Johnson on Air Force One. She be, that made her the first woman to have sworn in a president. Uh, she was also quite notable because she was only the, the third woman to join the federal judiciary, right? So she was breaking a lot of glass ceilings. But what I loved about that story and about her was she was such an interesting character. So you like, go back to the beginning of her life. So she was somebody who enrolled in GW Law School and she was attending at night. This is my favorite part. So she lived on the other side of the Potomac River from GW. She lived in a tent and she commuted to GW at night via canoe. And I read this and I was like, this cannot, this cannot be. And I went back and I confirmed it then with multiple sources. And so the telling of it was just so fun. So I, in the opening tweets, I'm explaining, oh, she grew up in Baltimore and then enrolled at GW. And then I said, you know, and she attended at night commuting by canoe. And then in the next tweet, I said, you know, by canoe, you might ask by canoe, I say, and then like, keep going from there. So, you know, there are just these moments where you get carried away with a story where it's just so much fun. Uh, and that was one of them. And it, it was lovely to have people respond and say, you know, I, I've seen that photo of the swearing in a million times, had no idea that there was a woman judge, had no idea who she was. And thank you for providing that context, you know, with that, that great moment in our history, the, the swearing in part. That's incredible. So yeah. Well, it, yeah, that's really interesting. What, what's the other one? The other one, this is a, a much more recent one that I did. And I, I just fell in love with the story. So I was thinking about Wyoming, again, one of my favorite places in the world. And I had this memory of being in grade school and doing a report on the state, you know, we, like everyone gets assigned to state. And one of the things I had said was, of course, Wyoming is the first state in which we had women judges and then also women serving on juries. So I just had this flashback to that memory and I thought, I want to drill down to that. Like, why was it Wyoming? And who was responsible for that? So I started doing research on it um, and I came to this incredible figure. So G Chief Justice Howe, who's the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the Wyoming Territory. And we get to 1869. So this is right when women have been given the right to vote in Wyoming. And he thinks if women have the right to vote, they also have the right to serve on juries. And there was huge pushback on this. There were a lot of people who thought that can't be. And there was so much pushback. In fact, uh, folks in the town where he was said, OK, fine, we'll, we'll gather all these women together and we'll have them serve. And their husbands will be so furious. And this will be such a scene you know, that Chief Justice Howe will have to go back on his word. So we end up getting this moment in time where, we, you know, all of these women are called in for jury service. And it's the first time this has happened. And there are reporters all over the town. Uh, the women actually were wearing veils over their faces as they were coming into court because they, you know, were just trying to protect themselves and not have themselves be caricatured in the newspapers the next day. But this, this moment is what just, it brought tears to my eyes. So we have the opening of court, and these are the words that were, were given. He said, 
you know, for those women on the jury, you shall not be driven by the sneers, jeers, and insults of a laughing crowd from the temple of justice. And then he goes on to say, it will be a sorry day for any man who shall so far forget the courtesies due and paid by every American gentleman to every American lady as to even by word or act endeavor to deter you from the exercise of these rights of which the law has vested you. And I just, it was like, I saw that on the page and I got chills, right? The idea that we were, you know, you just, you can imagine the scene and you can think he didn't have to say any of these things, right? Like he didn't have to have any kind of stake in all of this, or he could have said, you're right. It's too much, too much chaos. Let's dismiss the women and bring in a new set of jurors. But to meet the moment in that way, and to make it clear to the women, you have every right to be here and no one is going to take that right away from you as long as I am the judge. Just, I mean, it just caught me. Um, and I was so excited to get to put that story up. It's like, those are the people who we should be holding up more yep. and more. That's a really beautiful story. One of my favorite threads is because I figure in it, uh, although not by name, Ooh. is the time that you came to dinner at my home and I seated you next to Justice Breyer. And then that turned out to be quite an evening. And um, he later said to me that uh, he, he couldn't remember a time where he'd been to a nicer dinner party with more terrific people. So he, he certainly enjoyed it. We'll just leave it there. People can go look, look for the thread about your, the time that you were seated next to <laughs> Justice Breyer. It actually turned in a direction that was very beautiful. So what's What's next for, you know, what are you thinking about next? Can you give us a preview? Are, are we entitled to that? I mean, in the immediate future, I'm writing a book with one of my heroes, as I mentioned. So Judge John Newman of the book about the practices and procedures of the courts of appeals. And we are almost done with the manuscript. So that'll be really exciting seeing that come to print and then thinking about what could you know, flow from that. And then beyond that, I've got a bunch of articles. And you know, this, this time right after tenure is lovely. You get to co-author with people. You know, you feel a little more freedom. You're not worried about getting out so many articles, you know, by a certain time. So there are several people I'm getting to co-author with and I'm really excited about. Of course, Duke is the most exciting place to be on the score because we have our amazing Judicial Institute, the Bolt Judicial Institute. So getting Absolutely. to do events through that, I mean, there's just no better place to be. So depending on how this goes, doing a little podcasting myself, we'll, we'll see. You've got your hands full, that's for sure. What about on your Twitter feed? What's your next story? What's my next story? Oh my goodness. Well, I'm thinking about the people you connect with and, and what fun you can have on that platform. Uh, so I've gotten very friendly with folks at the Federal Judicial Center. They have a great Twitter feed. And then also the Supreme Court Historical Society. I mean, they are just fabulous. We talk a lot back and forth on Twitter. And someone in that office was saying, you know, with the Supreme, sorry, the Supreme, with the Super Bowl coming up, you know, this could be a time to talk about Wizard White. Uh, I think they're going to be tweeting something. And it's the first time they've reached out like that. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, that would be fun to do something on the great Justice White and his football days. So, so I think that's probably what's, what's up next. That's excellent. It's been such a delight. I really mean that <laughs> chatting with you today. And before we go, let's make sure that everybody knows, because I, I think having listened to you, they're all going to want to rush into your account and probably go up to 30,000 tomorrow. Oh, God. Oh, dear. <laughs> so how, how do they find you on Twitter? Um, I think they can just search for my name. So it's my handle is just at Marin K. Levy. Uh, and as you said, it's Levy with a Y. Apologies to those of you with the I out there. But yeah, Marin K. Levy. 
So uh, go to Marin K. Levy and, and, <laughs> and, and, check, it, and check it out. Uh, Marin, thank you so much. You're, you're doing such wonderful work. You're, you're a great scholar. You're a, a tremendous teacher. I, that should be apparent to everybody who heard you today. And you're doing such great work across the board uh, with Twitter, but obviously in, in so many other ways as well. We wish you every success as you go on with your your multifaceted life and career. <laughs> and thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Duke Law Podcast. Oh, thank thanks you. to you, David. This was such a huge pleasure. Thank you.